Welcome to the Author's Way podcast, a journey to finding your voice. I believe that our stories are powerful. Our experience have helped to teach us important lessons and our stories help us to use those lessons to teach others. Stay tuned to hear some great stories and learn how you can use your own stories to raise your professional profile, promote your brand and become a published author. Hey there, welcome to the Author's Way podcast, a journey to finding your voice. Today, I am here with Ron Voller, and I am really, really excited to to talk to Ron. Ron has a lot of really great experience. He's an author. He recently wrote and published the book, Hubble, Hummison, and the Big Bang the race to uncover the expanding universe. So we're going to talk to him today a little bit about his book and a little bit about some of the other things that he does. He is also on top of being an author. He is a producer, a writer, and a creator. He creates events and has done some some really great events for some different things, such as the New York Fashion Week, He's done events, produced events for Yahoo and for Bloomberg. So, you know, maybe he'll share a little bit about some of that work with us as well. We're going to talk to him today about being an author. He has published through a traditional publishing house. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Also, the most recent book that he wrote involved a lot of research. And I know a lot of people I talk to are interested in that research process So he's going to share with us some information about how he went through that process and how he gathered all of that information to make the book really compelling. So before we jump in, though, I am just going to share with you a little bit about myself. As if you're a listener of the podcast, you know that this podcast is brought to you by ExecuWrite. We are a book writing, ghost writing firm. We help people who, we help professionals, we help entrepreneurs to raise their professional profiles, to get their words out into the world, and to really build their legacies through writing and publishing their own books. If you have a book in your head, in your heart, in your soul, and you really are struggling to get it out into the world, Go over and take a look at our website. That's execurite.com. That's E-X-E-C-U-W-R-I-G-H-T.com. Check out our programs and you can even schedule a strategy session. Would love to hear from you. Would love to hear your story and see what we can do to help you get through that process. Again, that's execurite.com. All right, let's get started. So welcome, Ron. Hi, thanks for having me. So do you want to share with us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about the book, a little bit about, you know, the other things that you have going on? Sure. I live and work in New York City, where I'm based for about the last 20 years. And I have been developing my career as a researcher and writer and television and film producer for the majority of that time. I most recently published this book. It was actually just the fall of last year after 15 years of research which really culminated in the past two books that I've published, one in 2016 and then this one last year. And they center around the Big Bang and two of the individuals specifically who were involved chiefly in helping us to understand it, to sort of bring it down to earth for us. And yeah, I'm currently working on a new strain of work at Johns Hopkins University 
uh, where I'm studying to get my master's degree in interdisciplinary studies. And yeah, that's kind of what I'm about. So I'm always very interested in what draws people to certain topics. And of course, this is, it's actually a little bit different area than a lot of the people I talk to. It centers around a more scientific topic and a couple of individuals who aren't connected to you, I would assume. They're not family. They're not friends. So what drew you to this topic? And how did you really get started with writing a book about someone else? Yeah, it's an interesting subject. You know, I think one of the things you hear a lot of writers talk about is this notion that you should write what you know. I don't necessarily subscribe to that, at least not in total. I think you can write what you're curious about as well. For me, the key really is finding a subject that is not just appealing to me in the moment, but that seems to have the kind of staying power that's going to drive me through to the finish, especially where I think I may be getting into a research-oriented project because these tend to be, you tend to spend a lot of time on it. It's a lot of solo work. If you're fortunate, and I have been fortunate in recent past to have some assistance that can help you, kind of keeps you motivated. But, you know, you have to prepare yourself for the slog and you have to prepare yourself for the details that are, you know, that you need to invest to, you know, keep track of your resources, to, you know, make sure you're in contact with the people you need to interview and create the relationships that you need to drive the thing forward, to reach out, to be able to organize the kinds of institutions that you may be applying for grants or fellowships people that you need on your side to get you to the finish line. And so curiosity for me has always been kind of the main point of contact for writing. And to some extent, what you know, what you love, I think it allows you a broader scope, if you will. So that is kind of what was going on here. I I was really, I had started out in the early 2000s as a children's book writer and illustrator, and I had just finished one that I had self-published. And then I was, you know, building momentum is another thing I talk about with my ghostwriting clients and the people that I consult on writing is leverage and momentum. So I was early in my career and, you know, you go through this, all writers go through this thing where, you know, (laughs) you try different things and you fail a lot and, you know, you're trying to figure out what maybe you have a natural affinity for. And I sort of come from an entrepreneurial background, an art background. And so I was, and I was very interested. I was, I'm an all-star uncle. So I was just very interested in my niece and nephews at the time. (laughs) And so I thought, you know, this was kind of a natural thing for me to get into. But I'm also, I've also been a lifelong fan of the stars. And like most people, I look up at the sky and wonder, you know, just to be very general about it. And I happened to be reading a book. I was on a writing hiatus in the Philippines after the first book. And I was re while I was writing my next children's story, actually. And I was reading a book on the Big Bang. And this story popped out about this guy who, around the turn of the century, dropped out of high school on his first day and became a cowboy and a a mule team driver, driving the supply chains of materials and goods and supplies and the men who were building this state-of-the-art observatory on a mountain in California. And he, through 
throughout the course of the story, he ends up back at the at the observatory after it's much more established as a janitor. And only then, at, you know, in his early 30s, discovers this ability that he has for astrophotography. And he goes on to become probably the most influential observer of the 20th century, unknown observer of the 20th century, and really helps. Without him, Hubble wouldn't have established the, the Big Bang. And so he's just this marginalized guy. And I just needed to know more about him because the story really was very concise. It was a paragraph or two long about this guy. And that was the point of curiosity. And I just, for whatever reason, because I love the stars and it was such an intriguing topic. And it seemed to me like, well, if I've never heard of this guy and I kind of pay attention to this subject, then chances are nobody else has heard of him either or not many people. Turns out he's a real cult hero. But so I then began the process of trying to dig up his story. And that's where the strategy starts to unfold and you have to start figuring out, you know, how you're going to build this, how you're going to build toward getting the kind of material that you have. You know, I have stacks of books and papers and stuff now from all of the research I've done over the years. And, you know, that started with, you know, just a letter or two. <laughs> and, you know, it takes some time to craft. I don't know how much time you want me to spend on this, but, it, you know, getting in the door is so important, especially mm -hmm. when you're talking about reaching out to a subject's family members. You know, I really spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to present what I wanted to do with this story and how I wanted to research it before writing to Hummison's granddaughter, who was alive at the time I found her through my initial research. And I was fortunate that she, that she accepted my request for an interview. And it's gone on from there. And it's been a very rewarding friendship and relationship with she and her sons and her family. So that was just the start of it. And I got a leg up from Dan Lewis and some of the people at the Huntington Library, which is just an incredible organization. You know, you just start there and you just keep digging up new information. If you're into research and you want and you have a subject you want to research, you have to be a you have to be a mole. You just have to get in and you just have to dig. I always kid about the fact that, you know, when I started researching Hummison, the path was so cold. <laughs> the trail was so cold that, you know, I wore holes in the carpets at a half a dozen libraries around the country just trying to dig up yeah. the, you know, the information on this guy. And but over time I was able to get it, you know. Yeah. And so that's the reward. I really appreciate the fact that you did reach out to his family because I'm sure that was a, a lengthy process to make that happen because, you know, unless it's someone you know, it's hard to find contact information and get to, you know, the point where you can actually have a conversation with someone. And it's so easy to bypass that step and really almost do it unauthorized. But I so appreciate the fact that you did it with the permission of the family. And I'm sure that helped you gain a lot more insights than what you would have been able to do without it. Oh, yeah. That's where the leverage really started for me. You know, I was that makes it easier to reach out to the Huntington Library and mm -hmm. establish yourself mm -hmm. there. You know, I mean, that library, basically everybody working there is a Ph.D. And so here I am, schlub 
you know, working alongside these people who all have doctorates or they're working on their dissertations. And, you know, I realized that I had gained, you know, the privilege or the right to be there by virtue of the fact that I really had sole access to the family and their library. And that became important to the Huntington because they're very closely attached to Caltech. And so it all just kind of unfolded from there. It took a number of years to really build the momentum and I needed to first do the research, which, as mm-hmm. I alluded to earlier, took a long time in Hummison's case because he's a marginally, he's a marginal historical character. Whereas other people, you know, if you're doing a book on Einstein, you want to, you know, I don't know what is left to talk about Einstein, but if you wanted to do a book on him, well, I mean, every corner has a something on Einstein. So right. this was hard. So you had to build toward that. But once I had that information, then I could really start to utilize the leverage that I had to my advantage. Nice, nice. So you've brought up a couple of times um, story. And, you know, I think this whole process started with an interesting story that you read. I'm a big, for anyone who knows me, they know that I'm a big proponent of story. I talk about it all the time. To me, it's critical for good writing to include compelling stories. Otherwise, it's just data and information. But the stories really build connection and help to build a relationship with the people that you're talking about with the audience. So how do you find use story or find the really compelling stories to make all of the information that you want to present more interesting and more compelling? Well, okay. So in I'll just stay with nonfiction since mm-hmm. I think in when I'm writing in fiction and I will be writing I'll be getting back into children's here in the not too distant future as well. But if I'm writing fiction, I spend, especially if I'm writing a novel, I spend a lot of time creating the world that that novel is going to live in. Mm -hmm. So I want to know something about, to a lesser extent, depending on the weight I think the character may have, I want to know what they're about. I want to know, you know, who they are, where they come from, what the environment is they grew up in. I want to kind of, I want to kind of build that world. It's kind of the story within the story. And if you're writing fiction, it's incumbent upon you to give your audience, your reading audience, you have to lay that out for them, you know, whereas if you're, you know, writing in nonfiction, it's a little bit different in that you generally have the environments and you want to just find out what was going on when. So when you read my books, you get a lot of the surrounding history. What is the world that these people are inhabiting? You know, what was going on? None of us is living, no matter how mindful we are, none of us is living totally in the moment. Time doesn't operate like that. Time's an ocean, not a river. It's, you know, we're constantly, we're in a time, our brains are time machines. We're, we're in, we're out, we're, you know. And I always think of a director friend of mine said once while we were working on a play together that 1970 isn't actually 1970, it's 1960-10. And I think there's a lot of value in that. You kind of are, it's, yeah, sure, it's 2022, but it's also kind of 2017. You're bringing the long life with you. And so that's what I try to write into my stories. A lot, I spend a lot of time understanding timeline. I build long early, I built, you know, feet long of timelines 
to try to figure out what was happening when and how these things may have, sometimes they're influential and sometimes they're just more broadly influential. You know, flight isn't directly influential in the story of Milton Humason or Edwin Hubble, but the technology that's building through that era, telephones and electricity and you name it, horseless carriage, et cetera, et cetera, is leading toward the creation of these incredibly technologically advanced modern observatories, which has changed in less than 100 years, has changed our entire understanding of what the universe is. So, yeah, I try to write the history around the history and who the individuals are that are living in that history and how it affects the people that I'm writing about. There's no sense writing, if you want to write a textbook, then you can stay on the bullet points and the, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It has value in that environment, right? But if you want to interest people in why an eighth grade educated cowboy becoming an astronomer is cool and important, you need to be able to tell the story in a way that's engaging and inspiring. (laughs) So that's kind of the goal. That's such a great way to look at it. No, yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to look at it. And I think you also have to think about There's a lot of techniques that fiction writers use, I think, that can help those of us that are more nonfiction, like understanding the backstory. And it may not be something that you include in the story that you're writing, but just kind of understanding all of that history and everything, what brought them to that place really helps to build that character, which in this case is a real person. So it's not just a fictional character you're creating. It's a real person. So understanding all of that is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was trying to say in way more words than you were able to say it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Mm -hmm. This most recent book, you went through more of a traditional publisher. This one, you did not publish yourself, right? You went through a, you went through a publishing house. My last two books. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's one of the things I get a lot of questions about is what are the benefits of using a traditional publisher versus a, maybe a smaller publishing house versus self-publishing? And the self-publishing realm has has morphed over the last several years. It's actually now a lot easier to self-publish than it was, say, 10 years ago. So going through that process of publishing through, you know, kind of the traditional publishing process and having done some self-publishing yourself. Can you share with the audience a little bit about what you have discovered through that process and how, you know, if you have any thoughts on, you know, is there, are there any pros or cons around one or the other? Sure. Wow. Where to start? (laughs) I mean, you know, there are some things that are more obvious than others, you know, Self-publishing, I'll try to stay in the mo- in the moment here with this because it was different when I was self-publishing in the early 2000s, even from today, where we have this much, much more integrated internet system and the sales orientations are just, they're so much more efficient and on it. Now, Google really changed the game for books online quite a lot. But I would say, you know, if self-publishing... It's a lot easier. I mean, anybody can self-publish, really. It's more costly upfront. You end up 
generally spending more of your own money to get a book ready. If you're going to self-publish, it's important to find a group that's willing to work with you on the structure of the book. Most of them will put the book together for you, but early on anyway, with, I think it was Author House I was with, I basically had to send them the proofs of my book, send them basically the page layout, and they then put it together and sent me the proofs to edit myself. Publishing is with a standard publisher, with a professional publisher, if you will, is a lot harder to get into, obviously, which is why there are so many self-publishing houses out there. There are a lot of people who want to get involved. And I, by the way, speaking of story, self-expression is the core of the human animals, the thing that makes us most unique. And I would I encourage everyone to write their story, write the stories that interest. I am a big fan of story as well. And it doesn't really matter whether or not you become Stephen King or a major publishing figure. The question is, what do you care about? What's your interest? So having said that, yeah, I mean, publishing, when you get with a publishing house, you have this, you know, this organization behind you that does this for a living. They push out hundreds of books, if not thousands of books a year, and you get, you know, copy editors and editors and, you know, you see multiple copies, multiple proofs of your book before you ever get to the finished process. Depending on your level of involvement in this book, I have a lot more, I had a lot more creative latitude. So I was able to work with them on the design of my book. Having a design background, I felt it was important for me to have a little more say in how the book looked. And so, you know, obviously that's something that's kind of similar between the two, because when you're self-publishing, you're it's basically your baby. Now you get a lot more of the proceeds for your book sales when you self-publish. Of course, your layout in terms of cash is more. So I would say if you want to, if you want to, there are some things that I would look out for when you're self-publishing. One is the quality of the books that the publisher puts out. There are a lot of people, I was really surprised with this latest book to hear some of the people, some of my readers coming back to me and and telling me how great the book looks and feels. And that surprised me a little bit because I I hadn't really paid much attention to that part of it. I mean, I was paying a lot of attention to the cover design. and went round and round about it. But the quality of the paper, and they were, you know, just people Mm -hmm. were really commenting on how bright it was. And and so that dawned on me that, you know what, I think that's probably the reason you're getting that feedback is that there are so many self-publishers out there, groups out there, pushing out stuff on the maybe lower quality or the lowest mm-hmm. possible quality for the obvious reason that they're trying to save money. So, right. you know, that's a thing. You don't have the marketing. You have to do all your marketing yourself. So if you're self-publishing, if you're someone who is writing a book based on a career that you have, maybe you're a podcaster or you're a fitness coach or, you know, something of that nature, and you want something that concrete that people can take from you. And so the book becomes a marketing tool, if you will, then I think self-publishing is really of value to you. And for that, I would recommend going to one of the more established, one of the better self-publishing houses where you're going to get a lot of, you're going to get a a good value for the money you're going to spend outlay to make the book happen. We could do episodes (sighs) on how to do that and how to leverage getting started if you want to go for a major publisher and yeah, 
it's a huge subject, obviously. Yeah, it's a big process. Did you find that all the research you had done and kind of having the support from the family really helped in that process, helped you in getting the backing of a publisher? Yeah. So that's, I mean, you want to talk about value. You mentioned earlier the, you know, weighing whether you wanted to ask permission or beg for forgiveness. (laughs) That really played in my favor as I moved forward, as I suggested Mm -hmm. earlier, you know, by the time I was ready to, you know, write the book, find a publisher and get a contract, I had years of research at a prestigious library, several observatory libraries and, you know, the Huntington is closely linked with Caltech in California. And so I had that leverage. I had the leverage of being very close to the family that for whom this, you know, the subject was, the book was about. So I was really integrated into it. And I used that not to go look for a publisher at first. As I was assembling my outline and creating, you know, kind of the how I wanted to structure the book, I started reaching out to magazine publishers and I approached them about who I was and what I was researching, et cetera. And it was really at that point, very easy to have a conversation about doing an article in their magazines. And I've actually become a contributor to one of the, one of the world's largest astronomy magazines. So I do that from time to time as well. But that all stemmed from the fact that I had done all of this other work and established a game plan, you know, a lot of, as I said, leverage. Now, once I published that, now I had that and that the value of having that, that relationship with an editor at this magazine where I could ask questions about, you know, what publishers do you think would work for what I'm into, what I'm trying to put out here? And I got, you know, a short list of publishers to go to. So now I'm going with all of that other stuff, plus having now become a contributor to this major magazine. And at that point, I think I went to three publishers and won the election, so to speak. It really wasn't, I had built so much momentum at that point that they, you know, it wasn't that hard to find somebody that wanted to publish, put the book in print. So, yeah, I think that's what I was talking about earlier about, you know, how to strategize where you're at. You don't always know how that strategy is going to play out, but I've really built, you know, almost a formula for myself going forward for how best to approach a research project. So nice. Did I answer your question? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Very helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Other than kind of the obvious, you know, bringing in revenue from book sales and you talked about, you know, getting an opportunity to contribute to other publications. What other benefits have you seen from, you know, being an author and producing, you know, writing these books and producing these books? Are there other benefits that you've kind of brought out of doing that? Well, I guess first and foremost, the relationships that you form and meeting people in various walks of life, the conversations you can have and the opportunities to tell and to help tell story in various ways as I work as a field producer and as a a creator and event creator and developer, I work with a public charity and the book has been of value in helping me represent that organization as well. So I think it just kind of, you know, helps to amplify some of the other things that I personally have interest in. And I think it would probably work that way for 
I haven't really had that conversation with my writer friends, but I would say probably we all value that to an extent, the fact that Mm -hmm. getting the word out about, you know, things that are of interest to you inspires other people to talk about the things that are of interest to them, right? So you start this broad conversation. I think that's the number one, my favorite part of it, especially as a solo researcher. You know, when you get done with 10 years of research on a project, you, I cannot wait to collaborate. You know, I just, you spend a lot of time, you know, this is a writer, you, you know, writing can be a, a lonely <laughs> pursuit at times and you feel like you've been, you know, working forever on a project and is it ever going to be done? So getting to the other side of it is just great. You know, that's when, you know, we really see the value in the, all the hard work. That's such a great point. And honestly, that's one of the reasons I like doing ghostwriting because it is a much more collaborative process. And it's not, you know, me just kind of sitting in my place, you know, doing my own research or doing my own writing. But I'm like you, I love collaborating. I also love hearing other people's stories yeah, and really kind of getting into what their expertise and what, you know, what kind of drives them as well. Yeah, and great storytellers. You know, I mean, being a great writer doesn't make you a great storyteller necessarily. You know, my dad, was a, you know, my dad was a terrible speller and, you know, he basically, he never wrote anything because he, he just wasn't confident there, but could he tell a story? And, you know, Milton Humison was that way too, you know, as a matter of fact, but yeah, so I, the element of story, the ability to, you know, take what somebody has done or as something you think about a subject and really relate it to people so that they can, you know, understand it in the moment and, and be inspired by it. That's, that's a craft in and of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So what else, is there anything else you have going on that you'd like to share with the audience? Anything that of course we'll have in the description of the podcast, we'll have the link to purchase your book. Mm-hmm. Is there any other way that we can help support you? Well, sure. You can go to my website at ronballer.com and the book is available there. As you said, you can also get links to my social channels there. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I am, there will be links if you're involved, there'll be links to an organization called the Paper Fig Foundation that I did as a, an advisor to the board. And this August, I'll be riding 560 miles to raise funds for that charity, which is working in Uganda currently to raise the economic standards of the local communities there. A lot of the folks there, most of the people living in Uganda work for a dollar a day and live in much less opportunity. And uh, families there struggle to send their kids to school and so our organization is working on that. And that is one way that you can really get, if you know, you're know you so inclined, I would love to have people out. If you live in New York, I'll be doing this ride in legs and I'll be inviting people to ride various segments with me or ride the whole thing if you feel inspired. So yeah, that's one way to get involved. And then I'll be doing some events along the year as well. But there'll be more information on my website about that going forward and social media. Okay, well, definitely go check that out. I love that. I'm a big believer in having charities, you know, social causes that you support. So I love that you're doing that. So one last question. 
I always love to get good book recommendations. So is there any book that has really, you know, been really compelling to you, has really inspired you, motivated you that you'd like to to share? Wow. Where do I start? (laughs) Yeah, there are several actually, (laughs) but let me see. There's James Baldwin's, I've just been reading James Baldwin's No Name in the Street. That's a fantastic read. Hmm on the subject of inequality. And if you're looking to be inspired or instructed to some extent on the plight of black and brown folks, I know there's a struggle these days to figure out exactly what the most politically correct way to talk about minority groups is. But James Baldwin's work in general is extremely inspiring and he's an extremely eloquent writer. If you're into nonfiction, there's a book by a guy named Nick Lane called The Vital Question. He's a microbiologist, and it's a mind-blowing experience <laughs> if you want to get involved in the astronomy of the inner, really minute aspects of what makes life on Earth possible. Just incredible. I could go on and on. Don't get me started. <laughs> those are two great recommendations. Thank you so much. I'll have to check out both of those. So thank you. I want to thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I appreciate you sharing your information about the process that you use. I know the audience will will appreciate that as well. And really kind of talking about the publishing process. It's and of course, like like a lot of things, it's those processes are ever changing, but it's really great to kind of understand from the perspective of someone who's been through it. So thank you so much for sharing that information with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to help. And by the way, if people have questions about it, they can feel free to reach out to me on social media. And I'm happy to talk with people about it. I love talking about story. So. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I'm sure the audience will too. So great conversation. And, you know, thank you very much. And I will, we'll be keeping in touch. I'm going to keep up with the stuff you've got going on. This is great. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, great to talk with you, Jennifer. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Author's Way podcast. I'd love to hear from you about any future topics you'd like me to cover or other authors you would like to hear from. Head over to my Facebook page, The Author's Way, like that page, and join a community of writers, authors, and fans. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Thanks again, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next time.